Glad to be here with you guys this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elder candidates here at Christ Community Church. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible this morning if you have it with you. If you're joining us from home and watching on the screen, or if you're in here and you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen uh, for you to follow along with us there. Now, if you've been with us this spring, you know that we've been going through the book of Genesis. I know we've got some new families who are joining us here. We've been going through the book of Genesis uh, this spring. Started with creation in the beginning, and then the summer, we're going to take a pause from Genesis as Seth mentioned, we're going to be looking at the book of James, uh, and that'll carry us through the end of the summer. But this is a really good text for us this morning to kind of wrap up our study of Genesis through this spring, because what we've seen up to this point is going to be everything from creation all the way up to Abraham, 39 generations of people from Adam to Abraham. And then when we resume in the end of the summer, we'll pick back up with the life of Abraham, and we'll spend the last 39 chapters really just looking at this one man and his family, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. So that's where we're, we're going. That's where we're going to see this morning uh, our, our text end up looking at, at Abraham. We haven't met him yet, but we'll be introduced to him uh, this morning in Genesis chapter 11. Now, before we do that, Let me ask you a question. Have you ever ended up in a situation in life where you have asked yourself the question, how did we end up here? How did we end up here? That can be asked a couple of different ways, right? It can be a really bad situation in life. You could be looking at a marital difficulty. You could be looking at a wayward child. You could be looking at financial difficulty and think to yourself, man, if I had known that this was the path that I would end up on, I would have made some different decisions along the way. How did we end up here? It can also be a really positive thing, can't it? I remember... When our uh, oldest, Micaiah, who's 10, was born, uh, there was about a 10-month time frame, right? She was born, we moved, I got a new job, and we moved into a new house, all within about a a 10-month time period while doing uh, master's degree work. Um, If you want to know where my hair went, that was probably why. So I remember sitting in in bed one night after we had moved into our new home, it was our first home, and, and, and just laying in bed one night and going, man, where we were last year compared to where we are right now, how do we have it this good? How did we end up here? I mean, it seemed like yesterday in my mind that we had just gotten married and we were those kids that got married in college. And so date night was like finding on a website which restaurant was running a special and then splitting a meal because 10 bucks was all, you know, like all that we had for date night, right? I mean, wow, incredible. How did we end up in this spot? And so that question, how did we end up here, is one that's really important for us to keep in mind as we come to the text this morning, because most of us have asked and answered that question for ourselves. And because when we have taken a look from our limited vantage point about where we're at, we don't have an explanation or an ability to say that we ever would have predicted that we ended up in that spot. And that idea, the idea of how did we end up here, is what we're going to see and is what's going to carry us into Genesis 11 this morning. I want you to think about where we're at at this point in the book 
of Genesis, right? God creates mankind, and mankind falls into sin. The relationship with God is broken, and now a need for redemption exists. And so God says in the garden to Adam and Eve, he says, I promise there is one who is coming who is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? The seed of the woman who will set what is right that what was, uh, who will set right what was broken in the garden. So that's what was promised by God in Genesis 3. But where did we leave off last week in our study of Genesis? We're at the Tower of Babel. And what do you see at the Tower of Babel? You see that humanity as a whole continues to live in defiance and disobedience to God. And so the question is, how do we end up from living in community with God in the garden and hope of a promise of one who's coming to make things right to humanity as a whole, continuing post-flood to live in rebellion and rejection of God. Is there any hope for something different? And so as we turn to Genesis 11 now, we are gonna answer that question in the text this morning. Genesis 11 is the bridge that connects the link between the brokenness of Babel and the hope of God's redemption coming to light. It is the beginning of the story of how God intends to create a people who will be his people and by what means he will bring about the hope of the promise. And we'll see that that movement away from Babel and toward the creation of God's people starts with one man's unlikely faith and obedience to God which will become a pattern for all who will call upon the name of the Lord to follow. So let's take a look at how we get there this morning, starting in Genesis 11, verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and he had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and he had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived, after he fathered Reu, 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Reu lived, after he fathered Sarag, 207 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And when Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And and, and Sarag lived, after he fathered Nahor, 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. That's a fun family line to talk through. First thing I want us to see this morning Trust me, this is going somewhere. This isn't just a list of names that make you really glad that your parents named you the way that they did, right? The first thing I want us to see this morning about how God works to redeem the brokenness of Babel and to create a new people for himself is that the line of the seed is preserved. What do I mean by that? 
If you recall what we've seen up to this point, every time that we've seen tragedy and death and destruction and disobedience, God has been faithful in Genesis to mark the line by which he would persist in keeping his promise, right? Cain kills Abel. What happens? Seth is born. The generations of Seth fall away and, and, and no longer walk with God. God raises Noah up. Ham sins against Noah, and God looks at Noah's son, Seth, and says, this one, this one is going to be blessed. The Tower of Babel comes, and we see in Genesis 10 that there's two sons of Eber. There's Peleg and Joktan, and Peleg remains faithful where Joktan doesn't, and it goes on and on and on, even through the generation that we read about today. And I want you to notice something. When we've seen these lists of generations in Genesis so far, they've all followed a certain format, haven't they? It said this man had this son, and then he died. And then his son had this son, and then he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. But here we are post-flood, and we're examining this line of the promise that God has preserved, and I want you to notice how the language has changed. The story of the line of Shem moves toward hope and promise. Do you see that? And it says, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber. And Eber lived and so on and so forth. Do you see what's going on here? No one has shown up yet who has been the fulfillment of this promise through all of these generations There has been no resolution, no hope, no conceivable, obvious plan to take the promise of Genesis 3 and put it into action. But the trajectory has now changed, hasn't it? The trajectory has now changed. We are moving toward life. The pace, the language, the story of Genesis, if you're reading this text, it is supposed to draw your mind toward the fact that something different is going on here. There's something more. We are no longer talking about how long people live before they die. We're talking about the fact that people are living. So that when we get to verse 26 here, and we read that when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. What happens? Do you see it? There's a break in the language here. There's no mention of how long he lives There's no mention of other sons or daughters. The cadence of the narrative changes, which should make us pause and say, what's different about this man and his sons? Something, something is going on here in the text that is unlike what we've seen so far. We just read through 10 generations, and they all followed the same exact format until we get to Terah. What about this man and his family is different? Now, before we see what that is, I want to establish something. Later on, we're going to see that God changes the name of Abram to Abraham. I'm going to try my best to keep those two things separate until Abraham's official name gets changed. But if I mess up this morning, just give me some grace because they're pretty similar names. Um, I never experienced that growing up with Chris. I mean, I got, I mean, anybody, if you've, if you've ever been in a classroom before, I mean, it's pretty easy. If your name is a Wheeler, like you just, if someone says your name, you hear it. But if you have Christine, Kristen, Chris, uh, you know, anytime the sound comes out, you're like, oh, are you talking to me? No, you're not talking to me. So there's that. Um, So I'm going to try to keep these two names in the appropriate spot. 
Uh, but we are talking about the same person here. Abram is Abraham. Abraham was Abram. Name change, right? The other thing I want to establish is that despite what the Lord would do through Abram and his family, and what we typically think about when we think about Abram or Abraham in the Bible, when we come to this story here in Genesis 11, verse 26, these people do not know the Lord, right? They don't worship God. In fact, uh, Joshua 24, 2 says this. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is a pagan family. In fact, we'll see in the next few verses that they live in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is this prominent, incredibly wealthy city. In fact, there was a, there was a, a dig that was done back in Iraq in the 1920s and 1930s of this city. And, you know, you, you tend to think about what, what life may have been like back in, in Bible times. And you just think, man, this is a bunch of people living in, in huts and tents in the middle of a field somewhere. No, Ur of the Chaldeans was this magnificent city built on the Euphrates. It had harbors and gold statues in this massive ziggurat, which was this ancient temple in the middle of the city. There were signs of commerce and trade. They found things that they think were traced back to, to parts of India. I mean, there were, this was a crossroads of culture and economy. There were homes. There were businesses. I mean, this was a big city. This was a big city, and it was home to the worship of a moon god named Nana, a god that Terah probably worshipped and that Abram probably worshipped just as their fathers before them did as long as they had lived in that city. And so yet, despite this, despite the death and disobedience that has marked humanity since the fall, despite the idolatry and the, the false worship, God persisted through the line of Shem's sons that we read about in Genesis 11. God preser preserved, he persisted and he preserved the line of the seed. And he brings the story to this point. And we see that very distinctly by the way that this genealogy stops and zooms in on this family so that we pay attention to what's next. So let's see what's next. Let's see what plays out, starting in verse 27. Read with me there. Genesis 11, verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. When Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Second thing I want us to see this morning about how God works to redeem the brokenness of Babel and begin to create a people for himself is that the son is chosen. The son is chosen. Look back at what we just read, okay? Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And when we hear about these sons and their families, we see that Haran has a son named Lot. Haran dies. Nahor marries a woman named Milcah. Abraham marries Sarai, who's barren. What does all of that have to do with a son being chosen? Chris, help me understand that. Well, there's a couple things for us to see here. First, if you look at the surrounding verses and passages and you do some math, which I know it's summer, I know we're out of school, just bear with me, you'll see that Abraham can't be the firstborn son, right? Terah becomes a father at age 70, 
We see in verse 32 that he dies at 205 years. But in Genesis 12, 4, we see that Abram is 75 years old when he departs from Haran, which is after his father died. So if you do a little bit of math, you realize that there's no way that Abram can be 75, his dad lived 205 years, and him be the firstborn. So why is he listed first in Genesis eleven twenty-seven? Because there's something unique about Abram. He is being highlighted because he's the chosen son, not his older brother or brothers. We don't know if he was second or third, but the, the purpose behind Moses putting Abram first, the reason that God moved in the heart and the pen of the authors of Scripture and of Moses writing Genesis to put Abram first is because there is something unique about him that is unlike everyone else in his family. And we need to see that and, and draw attention to that, right? This isn't the first time that this has happened. This isn't the first time that a firstborn son hasn't been the primary means by which God intended to move. Do you remember the first family, Adam and Eve? Cain was born first. His little brother Abel was killed, and God doesn't go, well, I guess we're just going to go back to Cain. No, it's through Seth. And we'll see this moving forward, right? Ishmael is the firstborn son, but who is the son of the promise? It's Isaac. Esau was born before Jacob, but Scripture says Jacob is the one who is loved. So this is not something that's uncommon for us to see here. Abram is the chosen son here, and it would have been understood by his position in this list of Terah's sons, which is why it is so significant when you look at verse 30, that you see that Sarai is barren. Because, listen church, if the narrative of Genesis thus far has been that the line of the promise, the line of the seed must persist, that there's one who is coming who will right what was wrong in the garden. And if Abram is the one through whom that promise will come, it's kind of a snag if his wife can't have a child right? That either means that God is going to have to intervene and do something here or that the line of the promise is stopping. And it's important for us to see and establish here because what we'll see in Genesis 12 when we get there is that God is going to expand and clarify this promise to Abram before Sarai ever has a child and he's going to say, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And in Genesis 15, he's going to tell this, this man whose life has been marked by looking up to the heavens to worship a false god. He's going to say, look up to the heavens now. If you can count the number of stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. God is going to ask Abram to trust him and believe that he will fulfill his promises. But how is that going to happen? I mean, remember, Thus far, all we've established is that this is a pagan family living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram isn't the firstborn son, but he's the one who's been marked. He's the chosen son. Right now, he's just a pagan moon god worshiper. Well, I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 7, because on the surface, when you come to a passage like this, it just looks like a list of names, but there's something going on underneath the surface here that we don't read about in Scripture until we get to the book of Acts. There's something unique about this family. There's something unique going on with Abram. 
But where this fits into the promise of God and where it fits into the idea that he's the chosen son, where it fits into the opportunity for Abram to trust and recognize God as the one true God is read in the testimony of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Take a look there with me starting in verse 2. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's where Ur is. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you look back at Genesis 11, it means that sometime between verse 30 and verse 31 of this chapter, the glory of God appears to Abram and interrupts his life and gives him a new path and a new direction right? This man who was a pagan moon worshiper, who was, who was advanced in years, who had probably spent many nights sitting underneath the stars, looking up at the sky, pondering his, exist, his existence and going, what, what kind of God is this, this moon God that I'm worshiping? And what does he want with my life? And why did he appoint for me to have a wife who couldn't bear a child so that I would be left without an heir to inherit the things that I've been working so hard? hard over the course of my life to, to, to produce. Well, I, is this all that there is for me? Is living in Ur underneath the sky all that life is meant to be? Is this my lot in life? The same man who had spent years doing that, at some point in time, looked toward the sky and it burst forth with the glory of God and God spoke to him and said, Abram, Get up and go. His whole world is reoriented in a moment. And he's confronted with a new reality of what's true. He's confronted with an opportunity to obey a call from God that for many of us would be impossible. Right? I mean, I'd like to think, I would love to think that I'm such a man of faith that if God showed up and appeared to me and asked me to do something radical, that my response would be to say, yes, Lord, of course. Leave, I'll leave everything I've ever known. I'll leave my home, my riches, my culture, my friends, my customs, and I'm going to go somewhere that I've never been before without any expectation of ever coming back based on a word that I've received from you. If that's your life and your decision this morning, what kind of response do you think you would get from family and friends? You called up your parents? Uh, so I'm doing a thing, and this is what it's going to look like. Can you imagine how that conversation would go? How about this? What if you said what you were going to do on Facebook? That would be entertaining for days to read the comments, <laughs> the criticisms, the complaints, people calling you crazy, right? Because we don't have a frame of reference for that. Why do we think it's any different then than it is now? We don't have a frame of reference for upending life out of obedience to God. 
when, when you see that happen, we have books about these people. We have shows and, and, and videos and, and, and stories that we tell people in church because as a people, even though we know and love and trust and obey God, doing radical, life-altering things because of what he's called us to do is still, even to this day, foreign for most of us who love Christ. And I don't say that to, to dog us or to criticize us. I'm just saying this is an incredible command that Abram is being given. It is an extreme ask that would require an insane amount of trust and willingness to obey. But that leads us to the final thing I want us to see about how God works to redeem the brokenness of Babel and create a people for himself. And it's this, the promise is believed by faith. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 31 and 32 with me. It says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, I know, it's weird. The city is named after a son. There weren't a lot of names and people back then, so limited pool. They settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Heron. Now, before we discuss that, I want to point out something that we will see later on in Genesis 31, verse 53. Here we see Laban, who's talking to Jacob, the, the grandson of Abraham, and this is what it says there. It says, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, Abram, Abram's brother, and the God of their father, judge between us. What does that mean? It means that while Abram was the one who saw the glory of God, and heard the call of the word of the Lord, he was able to go to his father and to his brother and say, hey guys, I think we're missing it. I think we're missing it. There is a God, but it's not the moon God that we go up on this ziggurat in the middle of our city and we worship it's the one true God and he's appeared to me and he has given me a call and a purpose and an inheritance and I have to go. And his father and his brother believe. And so not just Abram and his wife, but his father and his nephew Lot, they leave Ur of the Chaldeans and they go toward the land that God would show Abram. And while the furthest that Terah would go was Haran before he stopped, we know that Abram would ultimately press on toward the land that God had for him. Listen, Abram could have dismissed the promise of God, couldn't he? We've seen God show up in Genesis up until this point in magnificent, glorious ways. Can you imagine being Ham? Watching God bring these animals to this ark that your father built in the middle of the desert and then watching it rain for a year and then getting out of the ark and saying, that's not a God that I'm willing to follow. I don't trust him. I saw humanity get wiped out because of his rightful wrath from the face of the earth, but I will still not worship him. Abram could have had the glory of God appear to him and say, no, that's okay. That sounds a little weird. I'm not really sure I want to do that. He could have rejected the call and the command of the Lord. It's been part and parcel 
of what we've seen so far in Genesis. Sin has crouched at the door of the sons of Adam, and most have let it master them. They've forgotten the Lord, but Abram doesn't. He hears the voice of God, and he hears the command to go, and what does he do? He obeys. He leaves. He trusts. Verse 31, they are going. Acts 7, Abram, Abraham was told, go out from your land, and he went. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. He had no experiential knowledge of this place that he was being told to go to. He believed with assurance as Hebrews 11. We talk about this, this verse in Hebrews. It, it, Hebrews 11 starts by saying that faith is the assurance of, of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Abram went believing the promise of God. So what does that mean as, as we look at, at Genesis 11 here. What does that mean as we wrap up this first part of Genesis? What does that mean for the promise that God gave in Genesis 3, which we've yet to see come to fruition? What does that mean when we look at the the brokenness of Babel and the, the rejection of God's truth by humanity that we saw last week? It means this, that the brokenness of humanity that we've seen in Genesis thus far, the brokenness of humanity, which is seen in great display at Babel, it would not win the day. It won't win the day. The generations of unfaithfulness would not continue. The hope of redemption would begin to take shape by God appointing a man, Abram, who he appeared to and called to a place of obedience and granted the ability to trust and believe his word and by doing so would thus create the father of all those who would believe by faith, as Romans 4 says. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what's going on here in Genesis 11? Do you see the hand of God working to overcome worldly, uh, global disobedience by speaking into the quiet of this man's life and inviting him to trust him and follow him? That is what sets us up to see God at work in the rest of this book. This chapter, this appearance, this call by God to Abram is the beginning of the next chapter of God's plan to redeem what was lost in the fall. You know, this all parallels another story, doesn't it? You can't read this and not see the immediate and obvious parallel. A story where the seed is preserved and a son is chosen and by his obedience and faith, a people of God are created. But this time it's not to a physical inheritance, like a land being given. It's to a spiritual inheritance that doesn't fade. Who am I talking about? Christ. Christ. And we're called to follow his example by being people who respond in faith, not just to the call of salvation, to to leave our sin and, and darkness and move toward Christ, but to live by faith in anticipation of a hope in front of us. The end of of Hebrews 11, the beginning of of Hebrews 12 is going to tell us, let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. 
living in faith, church, is something that requires action, just as it did for Abraham. It, it involves getting up and taking steps. It's not just assenting to an idea and going, I agree with that. It is living out of a conviction that there is a future hope in front of us that is real and that is certain and that motivates us to get up and go. And we'll see that in significant clarity as we study the book of James because the book of James is gonna say, hey, look, here's some training wheels for your faith because it's not enough to just say that you believe. How does it play itself out in your life? Faith is married with motivated action because of that faith. We'll see how that plays itself out in the life of the believer in, in James. But for today, I think we just leave it here. I don't want to say more than what the Bible is saying to us here. I want to point out that God would not leave his ultimate promise to redeem mankind and reverse the course of sin to ruin. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't leave it to chance. No amount of disobedience by men that we've seen thus far could prevent God from bringing about his plan. And so the brokenness of Babel is finally set on a course toward hope by God opening Abram's eyes to see the truth and leading him to a place of obedience and trust. And Abraham stands as an example for us of what God ultimately desires for us to do, right? That we would exercise faith leading to action in the things that God calls for us to do. That ultimately at the root of faith, we would see our faith leading to action, not just a belief in what's said, but a willingness to act upon what's true because the one who says it is trustworthy and has opened our eyes to see the truth. I pray that we would respond this week by being people who are willing to do the tough things that God calls us to do. He's not asking many of us to leave our homes, leave our families, leave our cultures and go to a place that he's calling us to, but he is inviting us to step into conversations in our home. He is inviting us to prioritize our time. He's inviting us to live our lives before our spouses and our children in a way that makes much of Jesus. He's asking us to do that in front of other people. He's inviting us to draw near to him in his word and in prayer. He is inviting us to leave behind things that he would tell us to leave behind because they trap and ensnare us and draw us away from him. And so, like Abraham, the father of those who believe by faith, I pray that we might see that opportunity to partake in the promises that he affords us through Christ for all who believe and respond in faith and action. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we see this morning, that you are a God who calls people out of darkness into light. We thank you that your promise is true. We thank you that the fulfillment of the promise that you made in the garden is Christ, that he has come, that the ultimate plan to create a people for yourself and to redeem what was lost has been put into place and been restored. And so, Lord, we worship you now. We worship Jesus now because we understand that just as you appeared to call Abram out of darkness into light, you've done the same for us. You've called us out of the darkness of our sin and into the light. You've invited us to be on a journey of walking with and trusting you. And you are leading us toward an inheritance which is far greater than we could ever imagine. May that motivate us both now to worship you in song and in response, but also motivate us this week 
to worship you with our lives as we consider what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We give this time to you now, worshiping in response for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.